Good evening. Uh, our scripture reading for this evening will be taken out of Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 28. And when you find it, please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 4, 23 through 28. When they had been released, they went to their own companies, companions, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for this evening. Father, thank you for, Lord, the work that you've done on our behalf. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Lord, I pray for this evening you would just attend my words. I pray that you would open hearts, open eyes, Lord, that you would be glorified, Father, for the work that you've done uh, for our good, Jesus. Amen. Well, this is Good Friday, and if you're sitting with us, or if you've never paid attention, you might be wondering why we call Good Friday, Good Friday, when we are celebrating the death of a good man. And so this evening, I would like to just answer that question, why we call Good Friday, Good Friday. And my argument, it will be uh, supported by three uh, points, the excellencies of the horror of the day, and the glory of God. So point one, the excellencies of Christ. In our passage we just read, it says that Jesus Christ was the anointed of God. There was no man ever like Jesus Christ. Uh, John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ wasn't just a man like you and I, but he was the God-man. He was, but still a man nonetheless. He came in and took on flesh and that we feel in the flesh. But in his life here, in the, and when he walked this earth, he was like no other man that ever walked this earth. No one before him and no one after him. His glories and his excellencies uh, were, to, were many. Um, even John says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And one of the things that made him so excellent is that he, in his life here, he gave hope to the hopeless. Uh, in the day and age that he was here with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of the religious community, uh, they were above everybody else. They would not stoop down to the lower levels, to sinners. And, but we see that Jesus Christ uh, moved in and amongst the sinners. He, he ate with tax collectors and he brought the, uh, the religious leaders against him. And one of those examples of what made him so excellent was when he was with the woman at the well. Remember in John 4, uh, the woman came to fetch water 
is about the sixth hour, which would have been about noontime. Uh, As she shows up there, Jesus is sitting there, and she's coming to get water. Uh, Now, women normally at this time would be fetching water in the morning, in the cool of the day. You come and you do get all your water jugs filled up, and uh, you do it with all the other local ladies, and this is a time when a social gathering for the ladies, but this woman wasn't there. She wasn't in the social gatherings. In fact, she's an outcast, and she's there in the heat of the day to get her, her water. She is the cast-off of our world system. She's a nobody, and yet who's sitting there when she shows up? She doesn't even know. It's the greatest man that ever walked the earth, and he's sitting there waiting for her. This was how excellent Jesus Christ is. And she shows up and begins a conversation with Jesus, and he's talking to her. And uh, in, the, in the midst of the conversation, he says, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you have spoken rightly. You have had five husbands, and the man you now live with is not even your husband. This woman was completely hopeless, outcast of society. Nobody wanted to be around her. She was going to live out the remainder of her years and die and have no life at all. But it's even worse than that for her because in the midst of the conversation with, with the Lord, she could tell something's going on. Who is this guy? And she begins asking questions about worshiping God. She says, the Jews say we, we have to worship in Jerusalem, and, but we uh, Samaritans, we worship on Mount Gerizim and Uh, which one is the right one, trying to figure out what's going on. And Jesus tells her, you don't know what you even worship. She's completely lost. She doesn't even worship the God she thinks she's worshiping. She's lost, outcast, no hope, nothing. But sitting right there is the Messiah, is the Savior of the world. And in the midst of the conversation, she, she changes subjects and she says, I know there's a Messiah coming. I know there's somebody coming to, to put things right. Something's got to put things right. And he says, woman, I who am speaking to you am he. Jesus reveals himself in the fourth chapter of John to, to not the, the high society in Jerusalem, not the leading religious leaders, not the well-to-do. It's the outcasts. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Think of it. The creator of everything, angels, the universe, the stars, this earth, us, our systems, how we work, everything. The most glorious being ever. He's sitting there waiting for her to show up. That's how excellent he is. That's how beautiful he is. That's how saving he is. He came to save. He did not come to judge on his first coming. He was a hope to the, to the hopeless. And, in his, and as he moves on, he, 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 he gathers disciples, right? The 12 disciples. He's, he's building a ministry. He's, he's forming his church. And how, do, how would we form churches today? Uh, men of the world, and not even men of the world, but men in the church, we, we do it too. What do, what do, who do we seek out to lead our, our churches and our, our corporations? We seek the best of the best, don't we? We seek uh, the high, most highly educated, the best looking, the most articulate, just the well put together guys and gals, right? Because we want, we want these people representing us. This is going to be our image. The best of the best, cosmopolitan. All the way, that's 
how we think success is going to happen. How does Jesus think success is going to happen? How does he pick his 12 disciples? Well, we know at least a third of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. And if you know the Bible, tax collectors were despised. They were seen as traitors to the nation. And he picks men. In Acts, when Peter gives his first sermon in chapter uh, 2, and then on into 3, the religious leader's response to him and John's preaching was, they could tell that they were uneducated uh, and common men. Jesus, in building the foundation of the church, chooses uneducated, common, rough around the edges men. And why does he do that? He, he, you know, you think about Levi. He's, he walks up to Levi. He's a tax collector. And he says, Levi, come follow me. And Levi drops everything. And he goes and he, he has a dinner that night with Jesus. And Jesus goes and he attends and he's in the house of a, of a tax collector. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the Pharisees, no way. And in that house are sinners, the tax collectors. And Jesus is eating amongst them and drinking amongst them. And the, and the religious leaders complain, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? That's something we don't do. A good religious man doesn't associate with these people. And how does our Lord respond to them? I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. He's in brothers and sisters. We're all sick. <laughs> there are none of us that are healthy and right before the Lord. We are all sick, including those religious leaders. Why would he choose tax collectors and uncommon men? Because I think he wanted it to, to the world to see that the power of this was going to be the Father, was going to be the Spirit. It was not going to be from the strength of the arm. It was not going to be man in his, uh, his power to do this. It was going to be solely God in his power, the church. Jesus Christ did everything to glorify the Father. His whole life was dedicated to the glory of the Father. Psalm 40, verse 6, Messianic Psalm Sacrifice meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering you have not required. Now this is Jesus speaking. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is written on my heart. This is Jesus speaking of his Father. He came to do the Father's will. He came to glorify the Father in all that he did here. His life was devoted and dedicated to it. Did he do it well? well let me show you. In John 12, 27 to 28, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into, into uh, Jerusalem. He were about a few days out from the crucifixion. And in the midst of those days, some Gentiles show up and they want to speak to Jesus. And Jesus knows it's, it's upon him. The time has come. And this is Jesus' response. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have glorified it. And will glorify it again. How did he glorify it? He glorified it through his son. He glorified it through his son's 
life here on earth through his glory, through his, through his work. So what's so good about Good Friday? If this is such an excellent man, if this is the, the, the son of God, and, and today we celebrate his death, why do we celebrate the death of such an excellent one as Jesus? He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. Lepers were cleansed. Demons were cast out. Water was turned into wine, and the dead were made alive. He calmed storms, commanded demons, and they obeyed. Walked on water, rebuked fevers, and they left. Fed the 5,000 and 4,000, not just out of, for a sign, but out of compassion. He had compassion for the people. When he taught the people, they were astonished. He taught with authority and not like the scribes and Pharisees. He wasn't some academic data dumper. His heart was for the people, and he preached them to them with authority. The religious leaders tried to trip him up. They tried to catch him in his words, but to no avail. And they left him alone. He spoke like no other man. He was glorious in everything he did. John said, if you were to write the things that Jesus did in books, not even the world can contain what he did. But you know what he never did? There is one thing he never did. He never sinned. Jesus Christ never sinned. He never grumbled. He never complained. He never lusted. He never disobeyed. He never sinned. There was no man ever like this man. Glorious in all his ways. Beautiful in all his ways. So what's so good about Good Friday? This glorious man, this glorious God-man in who the glory of the Father was shown to the world? Was it the way he died? Was, was that what's good? Did, was he like this victorious general that went out in a, in a blaze of glory in battle? Is that why we celebrate it? No, he died a shameful death. A death on the cross, betrayed by his nation and his friend. And that's the point number two, the evil of that day. In Psalm 41.9, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus Christ did not go out in a blaze of glory in his death, but he went out in shame, betrayed by one of his own men, Judas Iscariot. Judas lived with Jesus for over three years saw him, knew him, knew his excellencies, was up close and personal with him. And Judas, being a lover of money, you remember the story when Mary came to anoint Jesus' feet before his death and burial, broke an alabaster jar of expensive oil and anointed Jesus with it. And Judas saw that and he couldn't take it no more. To him, that was outrageous. He, he, he held the money purse, right, for the group, and he stole out of it. And that, that, was the, that was it for Judas. Immediately after that, he went to the Pharisees, and he asked them, 
what, will you, what are you willing to give me to betray him? And they obliged. They said, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. You know what 30 pieces of silver about you in those days? A slave. Jesus is betrayed by his own friend, his own partner in ministry for 30 pieces, the price of a slave. He did not go out in glory. He was betrayed by him. But it wasn't as though Judas acted alone. No, it didn't start with Judas. It was the religious leaders themselves, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. Uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and they all cuddle together and get together, and they're they're asking, what are we going to do with this guy? He raised somebody from the dead. What are we going to do with this guy? He's, he's, he's taken over everything. And you know what they came up with, these, these fine religious men? We've got to kill him. And then we've got to kill the guy he also raised from the dead. This, is, this, the, these, this was the, uh, how great those religious leaders were. God was in their midst bringing life. And they came up with, we need to kill him. So the fact, it wasn't just Judas. It was these Pharisees and religious leaders that then now plotted to kill Jesus. They had Jesus arrested. Judas led the Roman cohort into uh, the garden where Jesus was at, praying with his disciples. Arrested him, handed him over. And even as they're being handed over by Judas, by the religious leaders, and in they're in the midst of that, the question is, why did the religious leaders hand over this guy? He's a Jew. He, he's... He's preaching the kingdom of God. Like, why would, you, why would you hand this guy over? Pilate saw it. As Pilate's arguing with, or talking with Jesus and, and figuring out what's going on, why, why do they want to kill you? He could see, your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me. And Pilate could see, it was envy. The religious leaders were envious of Jesus. They hated all the crowds that followed him. Who is this guy who works with his hands, have more people following him than us? We're the leaders. We're the ones you need to come and talk to. We'll direct you. We're your priests. And here's this itinerant preacher, carpenter, no formal education, going from town to town, healing people, and preaching and teaching, and the crowds were following him. They were envious. They were envious. And so they had a mock trial. They bring in false witnesses. They strike him. They mock him. They they shame him in everything he does. And then they finally, after the mock trial, they take him, and they, they finally come to Pilate, and they hand him off to Pilate. And as they hand him off to Pilate, they're not handing him off to a righteous man or to a strong man. They hand him over to a passive, weak man who's all about interested in maintaining his position as uh, the Roman official, high-ranking Roman official there in Jerusalem. And as Pilate interrogates Jesus, as he goes through and questions him, Pilate sees he's innocent. Pilate sees he's done nothing wrong of deserving death. And so Jesus, or Pilate, even in the midst of the questioning, three times declares, uh, this man, I find no fault in this man. Three times. 
I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in this man. The religious leaders in all of them betray him, hand him over, and they have Pilate declaring the righteousness of Jesus. I find no fault in this man. But Pilate had the power to release him. He says, I have the power to release you and I have the authority to crucify you. But because the religious leaders threatened Pilate with a petition to Caesar, Pilate, Pilate caves. Pilate's more worried about his position. Pilate's more worried about upsetting the people in town. He's more upset or he's worried about his position. And so this weak man hands over a righteous man. He tries to, he tries one last ditch effort. He takes Jesus and has him brutally beaten. And in the beating process, he's beaten so badly that when it's done, you can't even recognize him as a man. And he thinks if I bring them before them, that will appease them. If they see him beat, they'll think, oh, it's okay. And he brings him before them. And he tries to release him because they had a, had a tradition of, at the Passover to release one criminal. And they would not allow it. They would not allow it. And so, not only was it Pilate, Judas, the religious leaders, but it was the people themselves. Delivered him over. Uh, Peter, in preaching in Acts, says, you delivered Jesus over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. It was a conspiracy. They all conspired on that day. The people, the religious leaders, Pilate, Judas. It's a conspiracy against our Lord, against this glorious one. And we see in our passage in Acts, the conspiracy is is stated for us. Go back to Acts 4, look down, verse 27. For truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This was a conspiracy. This was the greatest evil ever committed. The greatest evil ever committed was on Good Friday. The slaughter and butcher of Jesus Christ. There's been no greater crime ever committed than this crime that's happened today. Than Christ being murdered by these people. And then they, they not only just killed him in a quick fashion. No, this was crucifixion. This was shameful. After the beating he endured, they took him, stripped him all, down, all of his clothes off. He's completely naked. He's unrecognizable as a man. They lay him on a cross and they pound spikes into his hands and into his feet. They nail him against the, the cross and they raise him up and he sits on a cross gasping for air. Slaughtered. Just slaughtered. This glorious, beautiful man at the hands of worthless people. Pilate, Judas, the religious leaders, slaughters. What's so good about Good Friday? Why do we call this Good Friday? We'll go back to Acts again. 
I just read to you, I'll read to you again 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now catch this, verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. This was a conspiracy on the part of these people, but this was a conspiracy on the part of God. Before the creation, the Father and the Son made a covenant of redemption. This was a plan from the beginning. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not plan B. This was set in stone from the beginning. They knew what they were doing. They knew what was going on. They predestined it to occur. And so this is Good Friday because this is the will of the Father being done. This is the will of the Father to glorify His name, to save sinners, and to destroy the works of Satan. And it all was made possible through the crucifixion of Christ on a cross. You remember in the garden when Satan came to the, into the garden and Eve ate the fruit and she fell, Adam fell, and so the whole human race fell? They disobeyed God. How's God going to fix that? God can't call wicked. God cannot call the wicked righteous. That's an abomination. So how's he going to fix it? How's he going to undo the works of Satan? He promised it all the way back in Genesis. He was going to undo this. And then from Genesis up to this point, he's passing over the sins. And it's looking like you're not very glorious, God. Why are you passing over all these sins? Why isn't judgment happening? Well, it was going to happen. And it happened on Good Friday. The cross, when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he bore the wrath of God against our sin. And in in bearing the wrath of God against our sin, he undid He undid the works of Satan. See, Satan's grasp on us was sin. Satan's grasp on us is Satan knew that God cannot justify sinners. And what is Satan always doing before God? He's the accuser, right? He's accusing us of our sin. See their sin? See their sin? And before there was any atonement made for that sin, he had us in the grasp of his hand. There was no way out. No man could ever keep the law and fulfill it and be able to come out of the grip of Satan's hold. But Jesus Christ, who lived the righteous life that you and I never could live, the most glorious life that was ever lived, the most faithful life, the most beautiful life, the most God-exalting, God-honoring life that was ever lived, he lived in our stead. And he went to the cross and bore the wrath of God. God's wrath was satisfied against our sin. Paid in full. Wiped away. Never to be recalled again. In the works of Satan, undone. God is exalted and glorified. The Father is exalted and glorified through the cross. Satan's works are destroyed. And a door is opened for you and I. For the first time, there is a way back to God. 
a way that takes care of our sin? Isn't it nice? Have you thought about this? If God, the Muslim God, when they talk about sin, they say, well, he just forgives. He, he wipes, he sweeps it under the rug and he just forgives. Is that just? Is that righteous? Does that deal with the sin? What about our guilt? There's a lot of guilt in us for our sin. But Christ on the cross, when he paid for our sin, took that guilt away because he says, I reckoned with it. I dealt with it. It's over. It's gone. You, have to ha- you don't have to have any more guilt. I did it. I took it upon myself. And the Father accepted it. Sinners are saved. Satan is defeated. The Father is glorified on the cross. This is why Good Friday is good. I just want to leave you with application. You have to apply this to your lives. When we don't apply the the word of God to our lives, that's called a one-way ticket to hell. The word of God must be applied to our lives. To you believers who've known the Lord and walked with him for years, the cross of Christ gives you no room for spiritual pride. The cross destroys spiritual pride. Jesus Christ had to die. What are you going to boast about? You can quote the Puritans. You think Calvin's great? What are you going to boast about? Jesus Christ died. The grounds of your justification are his death. Check the spiritual pride at the door. You want to boast in something? Boast in Christ and the cross. Boast in Christ crucified. That's our boast. Paul said he he dared not boast in anything else but Christ and him crucified. That's our boast. Don't boast in men. Boast in Christ. Boast in this most excellent one. Boast in the beauty of Christ. And for you who are here who don't know Christ, who don't know him savingly, who um, are trapped in sin. If I was to ask you right now, if, if you're to die and stand before the Lord, why should he let you in? And you said, well, I've lived a pretty good life. No, you didn't. It has to be because the one Jesus lived. I professed Christ. Lots of people profess Christ. I, I go to church every Sunday won't earn you anything. Think of the thief on the cross. When Jesus was crucified, there was a thief, or there's a criminal on this side and a criminal on the other side. And they're both mocking him. They're cursing at him. They're mocking him. But in the course of the time on the cross, one of the criminals comes to his senses and he looks over and he says, Master, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He never went to a Bible study. He was never baptized. Knew nothing of church membership. Couldn't explain to you justification by faith alone. Couldn't quote the Westminster Catechism. <laughs> Had no clue of what was coming in with the Reformation or Calvin or anybody else. He knew nothing. He goes to heaven and the angels ask him, what are you doing here? 
I don't. How how can we let you in here? And the thief on the cross says, the man in the middle said I could come. Brothers and sisters, people who don't know the Lord, the grounds of our salvation is the work of Jesus Christ. You can add nothing to it. And so I invite you, those who don't know him, call out to him. This is what he came for. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save sinners. He did the work. He paid the price. He did it all. And now he just simply bids you come. Trust in me. Trust in my finished work. And like the thief on the cross, you will be with him in paradise one day. Well, this isn't the end of the story. He's crucified today. He's buried. But it's not the end of the story with Jesus. And we will see you Sunday for the rest of the story. Father in heaven, thank you for your work. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ. Thank you for his beauty. Thank you for his strength. Thank you for his ability, Lord, to love you beyond everything else, to do the work that you gave him and go to that cross and pay for our sins. The only way we can come to you. Thank you, Father. May you be glorified forever, Father, for the work you've done. And may your saints boast in you. May your saints make you look glorious. Oh, that our hearts would burn because you are glorious, because you are worth praising. Father, thank you for Good Friday. Amen.